morning. How are we today? Good. When I was about fourth grade, which would have been 10, 11 years old, my teacher announced that we were going to have a talent show for our class. I want to take you back and just help you remember. Remember fourth grade is when life starts becoming really miserable because we start caring about what other people think about us, right? What we wear, how we smell, how our hair looks. I don't really have much to offer there right now. But in those days I did, and I started really caring about what everybody else thought about me. And sometimes we have this narrative of we gotta do all these things to impress people, and so we come up with these ridiculous things that we do to try to get favor or get other people to like us. And so I knew this talent show was coming up, and so I knew I had to do something. How can I get people to think I'm the coolest kid in my class? You're smiling because you did this too, right? So I, I hatched this idea. I took my guitar with me to class. The guitar I didn't even know how to play, didn't know how to tune it, and I decided I'm gonna sing a song that I wrote except I didn't really write it. Now, at, at 10 years of age, I could have chose from, you know, all kinds of kiddie songs, but instead, um, I chose to borrow a song from the great theologian philosopher band Leonard Skinner from <laughs> 1973 with a song called Give Me Three Steps. And as I talk about this, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's 10 years old singing these lyrics to a bunch of 10-year-olds. You with me? Okay. It says, well, I was cutting the rug down at a place called the Jug. I don't even know what cutting the rug means. Was he a carpet installer? Was he working after hours? I don't know. I'm 10 years old and I'm saying this. I was cutting the rug down at a place called the Jug with a girl named Linda Lou. When in walked a man with a gun in his hand and he was looking for you know who. He said, hey there, fellow with the hair colored yellow. What you trying to prove? Because that's my woman there and I'm a man who cares and this might be all for you. Okay. Here's the thing. They bought it. The teacher bought it. I mean, I remember their faces to this day going, oh my gosh, this guy is freaking brilliant. So as a 10-year-old songwriter, then the, next, the chorus says, would you give me three steps? Give me three steps, mister. Give me three steps toward the door. Give me three steps. Give me three steps, mister, and you'll never hear or never see me no more, okay? So I sang this whole song, and I became the rock god of my school. <laughs> Fourth grade, I mean, I was Mr. Popular. Amazing. Teacher bought it. Kids bought it. I started to sort of believe that I had written this song, even though I didn't even understand the lyrics. So for two weeks, I was the king of the hill. Girls are passing me notes, giving me the looks. Guys in the hall, you know, you could see like, wish I were that guy. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I get it. I get it. <laughs> Until about two weeks later, I walked in and my friend Corey Watson, uh, we had grown up together. I walked in and heard all this whispering and I saw him down the hall and people like couldn't quite make eye contact with me for some reason. And I'm like, huh, that's kind of weird. You know, Mr. Popular, now people are sort of avoiding me. And then Corey steps out and ruined my life because he, he stepped out and loudly said, hey, you didn't write that song. And of course, I did what everyone does when confronted. I said, oh, of course I did. You're an idiot. He said, no, no, no. My, uh, my brother pulled out this record from this band called Leonard Skinner, and he played the song. So you know what I did? I did what you would do too. I said, they stole my song. I can't believe they stole my song. 
And he said that record came out in 1973, and then I was in the water because I was, I was born in 77. And, and so uh, it was, you know, they preemptively released my song. The lies had to stop. But what do you think happened to my popularity? It went in the tank. And I'm not joking you. I wasn't popular again for the entire rest of my academic career. I'm serious. And years later, I drove back to Missouri where my mom lived to see some friends. I was like 21, 22 years old. And at the time, you're not going to believe this, but at the time, people asked me, what are, what are you doing these days? And I was writing and recording music and traveling, singing music. <laughs> and so they're like, so what are you doing these days? I'm like, oh, this is a dilemma. So I told them the truth. I said, hey, I'm writing songs, I'm traveling, I'm leading worship all over. And, and to a T, every person was like, right, sure you are, uh-huh, uh-huh. I was like, no, I really was. It's kind of a funny story, but, you know, I spent years feeling guilty about doing that. I mean, it impacted my life in a huge way. And I think all of us can relate to, to having something done to us that we hold on to forever, or, or we have the weight of something that we did to someone else, and we just can't seem to let it go all those years later. And the problem is it keeps us from taking real steps into freedom. And we've been in this series for the last few weeks. We're on the fourth week, I think, of a series called Freeway. And, and in this series, we're exploring the, the hurt and the pain that rob us of taking real steps toward freedom. And today I want to look back into this story. We've been, been rooted in Luke chapter 15 and the story of the prodigal son. But today I want to look at it through sort of a fresh lens and, and, and through the lens of a word that has the, one of the greatest capacities to rob us of taking, taking steps toward freedom. And that's this word, forgiveness. Would you say that with me? Forgiveness. You know, for a lot of us, the word forgiveness is a, it's a hard word, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of baggage around it. And, and for some of us, it's carrying the pain of what someone did to us a long time ago. So the last thing we want to do as we've sort of dealt with that, and maybe we've stuffed it down and we haven't really taken a look at it, the last thing we want to do is take a step forward into exploring, well, what does granting forgiveness look like? Or some of us, we have the pain of, of hurting someone else, and we've been trapped in a cycle of guilt and shame for so many years, and we really don't even know what is the next step for us. But as we continue in this series in our journey together toward forgiveness, uh, freedom, it's really important that we understand that experiencing and extending forgiveness is an important step towards freedom. As a matter of fact, that's sort of the big idea I want us to unpack together today. Uh, and here, is, here it is. To the degree we learn to experience forgiveness for ourselves and extend forgiveness to others is the degree we will experience what? Freedom for ourselves and extend freedom to others. Would you read that with me? To the degree we learn to experience forgiveness for ourselves and extend forgiveness to others is the degree we will experience freedom for ourselves and extend freedom to others. And listen, said another way, if we don't learn to experience and extend freedom or forgiveness, we'll never truly experience and extend freedom. And so I want to dive into this, this story today with sort of a fresh, fresh lens through, through sort of two perspectives. One perspective is of a person who needed to experience freedom and forgiveness desperately. And the other perspective is through the lens of someone who extended forgiveness. And I know that this is true in a, in a, in a room like this. There are some of us today that we need to experience 
forgiveness like the son experienced forgiveness. And for others of us in this room, it's true that we need to extend forgiveness like the father extended forgiveness. And, and my hope is, after we take a look at the story together today, that we will all have sort of an action step. Okay, so this isn't just a sit and soak and just listen to the guy up front. This is, we all work today. We're working together to process this. And my hope is we all walk away with something that the Spirit is asking us to do. Okay? Now, just as a recap of the story, Luke chapter 15, if you haven't been with us, there was this man and he had two sons. And the youngest son walked up to him one day and he said, I want my share of the inheritance. Remember, the father in this story wasn't dead yet, but the son said, I want my share of the inheritance. And, and he took off to a foreign land with his share after liquidating this. He had money in his pocket and he went off and he did all these kind of crazy things um, and he blew all of his money. And then one day he came to his senses and he realized like, this is kind of nuts. I'm out of money, I'm starving and I want to eat the pig slop. Anybody seen pig slop before? Not tasty, doesn't smell good. I mean, it tastes okay, but I'm joking. That's a joke. That's a joke. I used to be real bad about making a joke and not telling people it was a joke, and later my wife was like, those people think you ate pig slop. So I have not eaten pig slop. But he was wanting to because he was starving, and he wanted to eat the pig pods. And he realized this is nuts because I have this father, and he's wealthy, and he's got all these things, and maybe if I go and say all the right things and I spit out this right formula, maybe my dad will let me come back and hire me as just one of his workers. And the surprise crazy thing about this is that he not only gets welcomed back, but his father throws a giant party. And that sort of is a, a weird twist in this story. And so what I want to do today is I want to navigate through that. And let's start off by looking at this through the lens of the sun. And if you're following in your Bible or through an app, we're starting in Luke 15, and we're going to start at verse 17. Here we go. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. And so we see in this story that his father comes out and he sees him and he runs to him and he meets him where he was. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But in the middle of this, the son launches into sort of this pre-rehearsed speech that he had written. The son said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your what? Your son. So we see the son taking some steps here toward forgiveness. And that's really cool. But I think there are three things that I want to sort of unpack, um, three experiences that happen as a result of this that I think we can all relate to and learn from. And here's the first one. It can take a long time to be ready to pursue forgiveness, can it? We could take a long time. See, we come into the story, and in this section of the story, it says he came to his senses, and then he concocted this plan, and then he went to his dad. But in reading this over and over, have you ever thought to yourself, why did it take him so long to come to his senses? See, he didn't come to his senses until his bank account was empty, until his wad of cash was done, until, you know, he had done all these things. So you think while he was sleeping with a prostitute, maybe he would have thought, this isn't good. Or while he was spending money on all kinds of things that were not good for him and watching his wad of cash going smaller, you think at some point in there he'd come to his senses, but he didn't. And what about us? I mean, often it takes us so long to come to our senses too, doesn't it? You think of while we're in the middle of yelling at our kids or 
judging some other person or whatever it might be, that we'd come to our senses, but often it takes us a long time. And more often than not, we don't even realize that we've done something to hurt someone enough to require forgiveness, right? Uh, a couple of years ago, I was flying to Chicago and I was speaking at, at a, a church I used to be on staff at. And I was exhausted. I was in the middle of a really busy season of my life. And I called several friends and asked them if they could pick me up from the airport and take me to the church. And I couldn't get anybody to do that. And this one friend of ours, her name is Diana, she said, I can do it. I can come pick you up. And I hadn't seen her in a year or two. And uh, she, and her, she and her husband are really good friends of ours. And so, you know, normally it would be, oh, I'm excited to see my friend. But I, I was so tired. And so she picked me up. And we didn't really talk much. So she took me to the church and dropped me off. And she went on about her way. And I, I made a comment like, hey, I'll, I'll talk to you and Ryan. I'll text you guys. And maybe we can all get together. That's her husband. And have some coffee or something and just reconnect. And I just, I just spaced. I just didn't think about it. So weeks and months went by, and I didn't hear from either of them. And finally, I was like, hey, how are you guys doing? Silence. That's, that never feels good. How's it going? And finally, she said, you know, uh, I've really been struggling to respond to you because I feel like you totally blew me off that weekend that you were in town to speak. I was there to speak about Jesus kind of stuff, but I didn't really act like Jesus. And I didn't even know that I had hurt her, and it really, really bothered me. I had to really think about this and recognize that, that I had done something unintentionally that really wounded her and her family. And I had, to do, I had to take some steps to make it right. And here's the truth. Often we have to experience a great deal of pain in order to wake up and see the need for forgiveness. Sometimes we have to have somebody say to us, you hurt me. You wounded me. And in this story, the, the son had to experience the pain of losing literally everything in his life in order to take the next step. And sometimes when we do come to our senses, we still take a little while to, to, to take the next step. And sometimes it's because we're trapped in a cycle of guilt and shame. We know we messed up. So we're, our little voice in our head starts cranking up and, and just telling us we're terrible and all these sorts of things. And, and sometimes we need to process before we can take that step. But my hope this morning is that for some of us that we would sort of survey the landscape of our life and ask the question, is there anyone that I've hurt unintentionally? That the next right step for me is to step into asking for forgiveness. For others of us, maybe the next right step is to stop that cycle of guilt and shame so that we can take steps towards experiencing forgiveness and ultimately steps toward experiencing freedom. So we can see that it can take a while uh, before we're ready to step into forgiveness. Another thing we see from this, this sort of lens of the sun is that we often have many faulty assumptions that keep us from pursuing forgiveness in a healthy way. So we tell ourselves all these stories and we make all these sort of assumptions and it sort of renders us unable to take a big step forward. And if you look at the story, look at what, this, what happened. In verse 17, it says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. Do you notice in this what's happening in his head? He's made all of these assumptions. Do you see it? His dad didn't tell him he's no longer worthy to be his son, did he? His dad didn't tell him, well, you can maybe get a job as one of my servants. This is all a narrative that he sort of concocted and sort of believing that his father, uh, he'd lost his place in his family and that he was dead to his father and he's not worthy to be his father's son or that his, his sin somehow excluded him from favor. And he also had just a real lack of understanding about just how merciful and good and gracious his father would be. 
And I gotta be honest, when I think about this, I, I really can't blame him. I mean, I, I, I do the same thing to myself. I mean, we tell ourselves all kinds of stories that keep us from taking steps toward, toward freedom. Things like, I have to get it all together, right? Before I can pursue forgiveness with others. Or what I've done is so bad that it can't possibly be forgiven. Or I don't deserve forgiveness. Or I'm not lovable anymore. Or that person that I hurt could never for, forgive me. Or one that I hear a lot is that God's angry with me and ready to just stick it to me because of the things that I've done. You know, and some of us, we've had a bad experience trying to ask for forgiveness. And someone's uh, uh, rejected us when we try to do that. But I think the real reason why this is a, a struggle is because we struggle to see ourselves well. I mean, through all of Scripture, we see this cycle of people making a mistake and then they're hanging their head in shame and they're running and they're hiding. And guilt and shame is this narrative that just won't stop. Shame pops up, and shame is real. We feel shame in our bodies. I remember being uh, like a third or fourth grade. This is pre-fame era. Um, uh, the, the ride, you know the 15 minutes of fame? That's kind of true, I've experienced. Um, prior to that, I can remember being in class and hearing, have you ever had this happen where you're in class or you're in a situation where a coworker or uh, even a kid in your house or one of your, your classmates, they get in trouble and the teacher's like giving it to them? And I felt like I'm the one that did something wrong. I think I would never pass a lie detector because I would feel guilty just for having to take a lie detector. And part of that is human nature. It's hardwired into us. It's fear and it's shame. And, um, and we often start with this assumption that there's nothing good in, all, in us at all. And we have to get it all together before we can go to God and say, I'm sorry. And I could tell you, after pastoring for over 20 years and meeting with people, well, one of the constant things that I hear um, people say is, is God hates me. God doesn't like me. I'm not good enough. I can't approach God. And I think we have to start with our assumptions about, about how we see God because I think that colors every other part of our life, how we see ourselves. So if we see God as the angry, mean God who wants to smote us because we make a mistake, what does that do for us and how we see ourselves? And I think a lot of us have trouble accepting forgiveness and stepping into that because we sort of grew up with this sort of bogus uh, theology. And I did. I grew up thinking that God, God was this, this God, powerful, all-powerful. God created everything. And then we sinned. And that made us so bad. that Every part of us was bad. There was nothing good in us at all. And God was so holy and so pure that he could only see us as filthy rags and we could never come to God. And so he sent Jesus on the cross. And, and sort of the little kid voice, I think that some of us, the character of this here is if we say the right prayer when we come down front or when we're at youth camp or whatever, then we get, a, get, a, get out of a hell pass, right? We get to go to heaven. And, and I don't know about you, but like just saying it like that, there have been times in my life talking to people who don't believe in Christ and sort of giving the synopsis of what maybe the gospel is, it sounds a little like, uh, where's the compelling part, right? I'm being a little over, overly simplistic, but I think that type of theology where we, just, we, we see that, where God just, just hates us, and even with, with the power of Christ, God still sort of has a strike against us. Um, I think it wounds people, and I think it teaches people something I don't think God intended, and it's not in the narrative of Scripture to see this. I was at a part of a church a couple years ago, and they had baptisms during the service, and there these little kids come, and these kids had a little testimony, and there's a little video. Have you guys ever seen this? Little kids getting baptized, a little video. And every single kid out of seven that was getting baptized said something along the lines of, I want to get baptized today so Jesus can take all the real bad part of me out. 
Think about that. Seven, eight, nine-year-old children who believed that all God could see in them was this horrible, nasty part of them. And I wept. And I went, I don't want my kids to do that. I want our kids to see that sin is a real consequence, that brokenness has entered in, but that God is also fiercely in love with us. That God's chasing us and pursuing us, and, and we, have the, we can go to God. And we see through the scriptures even, and in, in the early part of scripture, in early Genesis, Adam and Eve, they eat the apple. Eve gives Adam the apple, they eat it. And what happens? They become aware. And what immediately enters into the equation? Sin, yes. But also, what happens in this is, is they become aware that they're naked. And they feel ashamed. And the Bible teaches that God's anger burned toward them, and he couldn't be in their presence because of their sin, and he sent a messenger to tell them as much. Is that right? No. God rushed in. It literally, the, the meaning is God, it, like he swooped in, and he went to them, and he met them in their guilt and shame, and God called out, Adam, where are you? And it's like we can hear the heartbreak in his voice as God came in and chased him and pursued him. And God, even in their nakedness, created clothes for them and cared for them. And that's so much more compelling. And so for those of us who were in a place this morning where we're afraid to go to God because we don't see any good in ourselves, let's be reminded of the narrative and pattern through Scripture where Jesus walked to people. Jesus came to them, and he, he talked to them about what was happening in their life, and then he told them to take up their mat. It's time to let go of this and step into, into what I have for you. Go and sin no more. And for others of us, we need to look through those assumptions where we think everybody's against us or where someone couldn't possibly forgive us because the Spirit of God is working even through broken people to reconcile all things to himself. So maybe for you, it'd be good to take an honest assessment of your view of yourself or of God or for those other people and ask God to just give you healthy assumptions so you can take steps toward forgiveness and ultimately freedom. The third thing I think we see from this story that's true about us also is that often we don't take a step toward experiencing forgiveness in a healthy way because we don't really know how. You see, because of the, the, the son's faulty um, assumptions, he had already assumed that he'd lost all these things, and so he concocted this sort of plan of how he's going to go and re-engage with his father, and it was sort of a bogus plan because he had no idea how the father actually saw him because of all these sort of stories. And what's interesting is, as he went to sort of execute on his plan, the father interrupted this and, and had a totally different idea. And often I think we don't take steps that are healthy toward forgiveness uh, because we simply don't know how or we've never seen it modeled in a healthy way. I mean, we've all seen a lame attempt at an apology, right? One that says, I'm sorry you were offended by what I did, right? Instead of saying, I'm sorry I offended you, or I'm sorry you weren't able to handle your emotions, in that scenario. Guys, try that on your wife. Works every time. She's going to love it. It's going to be great. All right. So for those of us who we don't really know how to apologize, I'm going to give you, this, is, this right here is going to be worth the price of admission you paid to get in here today. I'm going to give you three simple steps towards saying I'm sorry. Ladies, elbow your husbands right now and say, write this down. Okay. Three simple steps to learning to say you're sorry and stepping into forgiveness well. The first step is to name it. It's to name it. You know, it's really important that we come to this place where we can say specifically what we did. 
Think about little kids. When little kids come to apologize, you, you have little kids or have you ever had little kids and you say, you need to go apologize to your brother. What do they do? They kind of walk like this. They don't make eye contact. They kick the ground. They stand there. They tweet. They Facebook. Whatever. When they're four. And then we have to nudge them and go, do the thing. What do they do? They go, I'm sorry. And then they try to walk away. Nope, up, up. Our, our kids probably really hated us because my wife's a therapist and I'm a pastor. So like just saying I'm sorry, it's like, okay, time out. Let's, let's unpack this just a little bit. So what we would always sort of uh, add is I'm sorry for, right? I'm sorry for, what, what did you do? See, it's a cop-out to just simply say, I'm sorry. And so a better way is to say, I'm sorry for whatever. I'm sorry for yelling at you yesterday or for telling you you're an idiot or hurting you by doing this thing. Or I'm sorry for rooting for the Raiders instead of the Broncos or, or whatever. That's a joke, kind of. Okay, we'll get it later. My, important, my, my thing is, it's really important that we name specifically what we did. Because that means that we're, we're taking some ownership here and we're acknowledging that this thing really happened and, and for the other person it helps them see that it means something to you. So the first one is name it. You know what the second one it is? Claim it. No, that's a joke. Spit and get it, blab it, grab it, nothing? Okay, all right. The second thing is to own it. This is hard. This is really hard because this is all about acknowledging how your actions or your words have hurt this person. So it's not enough just to say, I'm sorry for yelling at you in front of the kids yesterday. You need to add in, I know it embarrassed you, and I know it's a bad example for the kids, and I just want you to know that I'm sorry. What that communicates is, I'm acknowledging that I did this thing, and I'm acknowledging that this thing hurt you in some way. Does that make sense? So name it, own it, and the third step is to fix it. And I think this is one of the most important parts of this. Um, This is really asking the question, what can I do to make things right between us? So we name it and we say, I'm sorry I did X. And we own it, we say, I know it hurt you. The third part of fix it is, could we work together to find a way to bring reconciliation and restoration to our relationship. You see the difference between that and just simply saying, I'm sorry. You get it? Name it, own it, and fix it. And the bottom line is this. Some of us need to experience forgiveness like the son experienced forgiveness. And why? Because to the degree that we experience and extend forgiveness is the degree in which we experience and extend freedom. And going to someone on time and making sure we have healthy assumptions and learning to ask in a healthy way is a critical step in order to do that. Now, let's just shift gears now and let's push toward uh, the lens of the Father. So that was some things we could learn about forgiveness from the aspect of somebody who needed to experience forgiveness. Now we're going to sort of pivot and see through the lens of this person who, in such a beautiful, amazing way in this parable, extended forgiveness. We're going to start in verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, so the son starts the speech up, right? Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father turns and he says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And then he says this really important pivotal line. For this son of mine was dead and alive again. 
He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And then fast forward just a little bit as he's talking to his older son, who's really upset about the fact that he's loving this younger son so radically when his younger son spit in his face and basically said, you're dead to me. And he said, my son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? I love the picture that we see here. I mean, think about the perspective of the father. He has this son who comes to him and basically says, you're dead to me. Give me my share of your inheritance. I want nothing to do from you. And his son wasted a large share of what he had worked a lifetime to accumulate. And so there's a lot of reason to be mad and carry that. I mean, if I were him, I don't think I would have had that same response. And you might be thinking, well, how could the father possibly forgive this? And I think what's remarkable is that even though the father had a son that said, you're dead to me. The father was more concerned about his, his son being dead to him. See the difference? The son said, you're dead to me. The son treated him like garbage, but the father wasn't even paying attention to that. The father was more upset about the fact that, that his relationship with his son had been broken. And he had joy in this. He threw this party. That's why he told the older brother, like, this isn't an eye for an eye mentality. It's, it's my son was dead, and now he's alive. And I think this response is absolutely beautiful. And, and what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is I want to unpack five things that the Father did to extend forgiveness. And I want us all just to really listen because this is a cycle that's going to happen in life. People are going to hurt us. We're humans. We're broken. We're flawed people. And there are times that we just really wound each other. My hope is that today as we navigate through this, we'll remember these steps. And we'll put these into practice and we'll be a part of this grace, this cycle of forgiveness that God's sort of hardwired in the universe. It's part of the economy of grace. The five things that we see the Father do that I think are a fantastic model for us as we learn to extend forgiveness. Here's the first one. He saw him. Now, think of the last time somebody did something to you that required you to forgive. Was it easy? Did you immediately go, oh, cool, no big deal, I'll just step right in and forgiveness. No. Why? Well, because maybe they cause us a lot of pain or, or maybe the thought of being around them is triggering to us. It triggers something deep and, and because we're human, it's, it's just hard to, uh, to us to see past what this person did to seeing beyond the thing they did to the person that they are. And because uh, in order to, to move forward toward forgiveness, there has to be a measure of grief, doesn't there? And sometimes we, we don't want to do that. We want to just stuff it down and not think about it again. Listen to the words of the great researcher Brene Brown. She said, Forgiveness is so difficult because it involves death or grief. I've been looking for patterns in people extending gen generosity and love, but not in people feeling grief. At that moment, it struck me. Given the dark fears we feel when we experience loss, nothing is more generous and loving than the willingness to embrace grief in order to forgive. To be forgiven is to be loved. And then she goes on to say, the death or ending that forgiveness necessitates comes in many shapes and forms. We may need to bury our expectations or dreams. We may need to relinquish the power that comes with being right or put to rest the idea that we can do what's in our hearts and still retain the support or approval of others. Joe, which is her pastor, explained, whatever it is, it all has to go. It isn't good enough to box it up and set it aside. It has to die. It has to be grieved. That's a high price indeed. And sometimes... It's just too much. See, sometimes taking a step towards someone 
to forgive them is really difficult because we have to grieve maybe the loss of what was there between us or we have to grieve holding what they did as, as almost a part of our identity. Sometimes we have to let something die and maybe that's our expectations or as she said, our need to be right. But I think that's what living in the way of Jesus is really all about. Sometimes the grief that we have because of what happens causes us to sort of build up a wall and not be able to look at that other person that wounded us in any other way than they are what they did. And see, the father in this story, he had every single right to be angry and to put up a wall. And he could have just sat there and ignored and said, I don't ever want to see this kid again. But what we see that he did, the very first step is he was looking for his son. He saw his son. And and what sticks out to me about this is that he was looking with an eye toward life or restoration. And that's unusual when someone's been hurt, isn't it? I mean, I know for me, when someone hurts me, uh, uh, my first thought isn't, well, God bless them, and I hope they have a great day. And if that's you, you're a liar. That's not true. Okay, some of, somebody probably has that on a bumper sticker in their car. Oh, I'm really offended right now. The truth is, it's hard for us because it's, it wounds us. It causes pain, right? Our first thought often is, especially when we're children, is somebody has to pay, right? You come up and you hit me in the nose, I'm going to hit you in the nose. That's an eye for an eye. But remember, Jesus... Jesus sort of spoke against that. You've heard it said this, but I say to you, if someone strikes you in the cheek, what do we do? We turn and let them strike the other, okay? I think it's because if, we, if we're not careful, if we don't have an eye when we're looking toward the person that hurt us of life and redemption and reconciliation, it could start this whole chain of bitterness in this wall. But the, son, the, the father sort of illustrated to us what eyes of life looks like. See, the son in this story, he was coming about it transactionally, right? I did this, and so therefore I stink, and I can't be a part of your family, and all these sorts of things. The father wasn't looking at it transactionally at all. The father was looking at it relationally or positionally. See, the issue with him, because he had eyes toward life, was not you did this and this and this and this, and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and every little thing that you did. The father was looking at it as, you, you I thought my son was dead, and you're back to life. And that's easy to do when we're hurting. I mean, an eye toward death, death calls for more death. But life calls for life. Uh, An eye toward death calls for shame and guilt, but life calls for freedom. Death says transaction. Life says celebration. Death says you have to earn my forgiveness. Life says you've already been forgiven. Death says restitution. But the life of God says restoration. See the difference? And I've experienced my fair share of pain. And, and I tell you, the last thing I want to do when someone wounds me is have an eye toward life. But I'm convinced that this is what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. And just, just listen to this passage in 2 Corinthians. Because of all that God has done, we now have a new perspective. We used to show regard for people based on worldly standards and interests. No longer. We used to think of the anointed the same way. No longer. Therefore, if anyone is united with the anointed one, that's Jesus, that person is a new creation. The old life is gone. And see, a new life has begun. All of this is a gift from our creator God who's pursued us and brought us into a restored and healthy relationship with him through the anointed Jesus. And he has given us the same mission. Listen, the ministry of what? Reconciliation. To bring others back to him. And it's essential to our good news that God was in the anointed making things right between himself and the world. This means he does not hold their sins against them. But it also means he charges us to proclaim the message that heals and restores our broken relationships 
with God and each other. Look, I know that when someone hurts us, the last thing sometimes we want to do is have an eye toward reconciliation, but the scriptures clearly tell us that this is what God calls us to do, to partner with God in the ministry of reconciliation. When you go to someone and you see them with eyes of life, you're taking your first step in doing your part toward extending forgiveness, and which also means extending freedom to that person. And when we do that work to where we can start learning to, to see well, then we can take the next step, and that is uh, to have compassion upon him. See, the father saw him, and he did work to understand the perspective of his son. And, and just imagine how ashamed this kid felt. And the kid was telling himself all these stories, and I'm going to my father, but he's not going to see me as a son. He's going to maybe, hopefully, give me a job. Um, and, and I'm imagining this walk, Right? He's walking with every step. It feels like he has a thousand pounds on his shoulder. And when we have something that we've done to hurt someone else and we know about it, it's heavy, isn't it? I mean, it's like mega heavy. And so the son is walking, walking, laboring. And the father put himself in his son's shoes. Sometime uh, uh, a few weeks ago, I started thinking about this this passage that Jesus said. Remember on the cross when the weight of the world was hanging upon Christ and um, he could have said anything. There's sort of seven statements he made on the cross. And one of those statements was, Father, forgive them for what? They don't know what they're doing. I heard someone one time tell me about this, this concept in Eastern psychology that basically says if they could have done it differently, they would have done it differently. And I've never forgotten that. When I think about Jesus looking at this crowd of people who were persecuting him, putting him on a cross, um, and, and ultimately going to end his life, he was able to say, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing because he understood from their perspective, through maybe the stories and the assumptions that they had, through um, the, what their parents maybe said, what culture had sort of told them, that their pain and their woundedness and their baggage, out of that place, they did this thing. And Jesus was able to look at them with compassion and say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It's kind of like in a relationship when we get in an argument and we say, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. Well, we really did mean that, didn't we? In the moment, because we were hurt, we were upset, because we were wounded, we really meant it. But the truth is, that's not who we are as a person. And I think the real work for us is to look toward those who've sinned against us and to try to understand their pain and the reasons they did what they did and to see them as a beloved child of God who's broken just like we are and to have compassion toward them. The third thing we see is he ran towards him. I think this is one of the most striking details of this story, because in our, idea, in our eyes, it's like, okay, not a big deal, but in Middle Eastern culture, the patriarch of the family would not get up and run. It was considered shameful. It was like undignified. It was lowered than him. What typically happened was that the older brother would sort of play this role of reconciler, and the father would wait for the one who offended him to come, and he would hear their case and sort of deal with it at the time. But because the father had an, an eye toward life and reconciliation, he was like, no shame, man. It's on. I'm going to go out and I'm going to go see him. Because he saw his son and he had compassion toward him, he wasn't content to let his son wallow in his guilt and his shame. And sometimes it feels good when someone's hurt us. It, maybe it does a little something emotionally for us to see them wallow in their, in their shame and their guilt and they're doing their best to tell us they're sorry. But the, the model through scripture that we see here is that he went and he, he made us active participants. That, that we went and we interrupt the pattern. The father interrupted the pattern, was not content to let his son um, sit in it uh, because he wanted to display an extraordinary measure of grace. 
So I think for followers of Jesus, we have to do the work to see this person and to have compassion on them and to not let them languish in this thing that they did to us, but to run to them. Then he embraced him. And this is about accepting his son, flaws and all. And remember, this, this son had the speech all prepared. And he started, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and all these sorts of things. The father interrupted him. And what the father did in that action was to remind him that he accepted him and that what he did didn't define who he was. And I once read that forgiving someone despite what they did to us, not identifying them as their sin or the thing that they did, is one of the most loving things we can do. And I think it's a beautiful model of the expression of the gospel. And the last thing he did is he celebrated him. And the dad interrupted this cycle of guilt and shame, and he, he welcomed the son back into the family, and he threw this giant party. Imagine how it might feel if, if you'd hurt someone. And you went to them and you started to tell them, I'm really sorry uh, for this thing that I did. What can I do to make it right? And they threw a giant party. Think about how that would feel. Wouldn't that be amazing? Like your neighborhood block party. It'd be kind of embarrassing, actually. There's a neighborhood block party because Larry yelled at me in front of the kids last night. So we're throwing a party. Everybody bring your barbecue and let's go. Okay. So let's not do that. But you can understand how that might feel. So put yourself in the shoes of the person who needs forgiveness from you, what it might feel for you to celebrate them. Say, look, I see you. I have compassion toward you. I'm coming to you because I know that you made a mistake, but that's not who you are. You're not defined by that thing that you are. You're defined by this person that God's created you to be. So we've learned a lot today about forgiveness, both from the perspective of someone who needed to experience it and someone who, who extended it. And the truth is, if we really want to take steps toward freedom, if you really, really, really want freedom, you have to learn to experience forgiveness. And like the father in this story, you have to learn to extend forgiveness. Why? Remember what we talked about? Because the degree in which you learn to experience and extend forgiveness is the degree in which you experience and extend freedom. So what about you? It's been safe to this point because we've been talking about these other people. But what about you? I want to end by asking the question, how much freedom do you want? How much do you want? Not much? Then don't do the work to come to terms with your need to experience forgiveness. But don't examine your heart and your life. Don't, don't ask God to show you like, if there's anyone that you've offended uh, or if there's anything within you holding you hostage and keeping you from experiencing forgiveness. You don't want much freedom? then you should let those who languish or who've hurt you languish in their guilt and shame and, and don't take steps towards extending forgiveness toward them, which ultimately could lead to setting you both free. It's really up to us to decide now, right? We have to decide what we're going to choose to do with what we've learned. But I just want to remind you of the words of Scripture. Colossians 3 tells us to put up with one another. Forgive. Pardon any offenses against one another as the Lord has pardoned you because you should act in kind. Forgive one another because we've been forgiven. So forgiveness is essential to living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And it's thinking of the other and it's loving them well. And just like the son in this story, we've all made mistakes that hurt other people. But the father always is waiting on the other side of that with an eye toward life and reconciliation. And just like the father in this story, we've all been hurt by others. But my guess is we're tired of holding on to the guilt and the shame, and the things that weigh us down, and we just want to be free. So I think as we end our time together, there are some in this room who need to experience forgiveness 
like the son experienced forgiveness. Some of us, maybe your work right now is just to pause and get quiet and just ask God to bring to your mind if there's anyone that you've unintentionally wounded. Or if there's someone that you've wounded that you've been too scared to go to. Maybe you need to interrupt the cycle of guilt. You need to change your assumptions. And you need to make a plan to go to that person and ask for forgiveness. For some of us, our work here this morning is to extend forgiveness like the Father extended forgiveness. And maybe that's shifting our perspective on this person and seeing them as God's children too and seeing that God desires to bring them to wholeness. And we need to have compassion toward them and understand that they don't know what they're doing. Maybe we need to run toward those who have wounded us and show them the unexpected grace of God. Maybe we need to embrace them and welcome them back into the family. And maybe we need to celebrate God's healing and restoration. Whatever it is for you. If you're, the, you're in the position this morning of being someone who needs to experience forgiveness, I'm just going to ask you right now to just get quiet and ask God to help you figure out what's your next right step. And if you're in this room and for whatever reason you've been delaying extending forgiveness to someone who desperately needs it, I'm going to ask you right now just to let the Spirit of God prompt you and provoke you to have the willingness and the courage to figure out what your next step is and the courage to take it. We're going to take just a moment just to, just to get quiet and just to reflect. Let God's Spirit speak to you. I want us to close our time together by praying a prayer that Jesus modeled for us a couple of thousand years ago. And there's this line that says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And it's so easy when we've said prayers like this a thousand times to just be some rote memory exercise. But my hope is that as we approach this prayer together this morning, that that line would jump out at us because the cycle of forgiveness, experiencing and extending forgiveness is one of the clearest expressions of the love of God that we know. And when we choose to participate in that cycle, we're closer to following Jesus every time we do it. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is, is uh, as I want you to stand together, and we're going to end, and we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. And my encouragement to you is that as you say this, that you will take those things that you've brought to memory, that God's brought to your memory, and you'll be willing to take a step. And that you wouldn't every day ask for God to give you your daily bread without also being willing to do your work in the cycle of forgiveness. Let's pray this together. Here we go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great Sunday.